Hey, Cole, are you ready to stop relying on that body? But that's all I have. Well, hold that thought for a second, because today we're talking about the body horror classic Society, directed by Brian Usna. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. So yes, dear listener and Cole, today I'm talking about the body horror classic movie Society, technically released in 1992, but was actually released in 1989. They released it first in Europe, and it was very well received, but they sat on it for three years before releasing it in the U.S., where it was not that well-received. Interesting. Yeah, so a brief conversation, if you will, on the body horror genre. I love body horror. Yeah, so for people who may not be super familiar with it, body horror, or biological horror, is a subgenre of horror that showcases graphic or psychologically disturbing violations of the human body. That's from Wikipedia. The violations can manifest through aberrant sex, mutations, mutilation, zombification, gratuitous violence, disease, or unnatural movements. That is not to say that all zombie movies are body horror, but you get the point. According to the film scholar Linda Williams, body horror falls into one of three gross or genre of excesses, which also includes pornography and melodrama. And... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I like pornography fine whatever but like melodrama yeah I don't I don't know what she's talking about but she wrote that the success of these body genres is often measured by the degree to which an audience sensation mimics what is seen on the screen for example an audience may experience a feeling of terror through horror sympathy through the melodrama or sexual arousal through pornography body horror specifically focuses on the limits and transformative capabilities of the human body And one of the earliest examples or well-known examples of body horror would be Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1818. Which is also considered one of the first horror novels. I will eventually read that one. I mean, I read it in college, but like, I will eventually read it for this podcast. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I think obviously people are familiar with the story, but I find that very few people I've met have actually read the book. So it could be fun to hear you talk about. Because I'm not going to read it. Plus, I really love Mary Shelley. She's an icon. Yeah. So, okay. I have a bit to talk about with this, so I'm going to move along. The director was Brian Usna. He's a Filipino-American director. And this was basically his directorial debut. But he is very known for doing horror and sci-fi films. And got his big start in his career when he co-produced the horror classic Reanimator which I may at some point do. It's very well known. He then went on to direct Bride of Reanimator after this film. And actually, the way that he secured funding for Society was because he had gotten sort of his chops by producing Reanimator, and he basically owned the rights to do the sequel to Reanimator, which was a huge success, and told them that he would only do slash allow the sequel Bride of Reanimator to be done if they funded two movies, and if he was allowed to do Society first. Interesting. Yeah, so that's kind of cool of him. You know, he he basically had this project, 
that he was really interested in and used his fame to kind of leverage that. Yeah. That's kind of like how the producer of Repo did it. You know, he made all his money off the Saw movies. I was thinking the exact same thing and singing the songs in my head. (laughs) So he did, he went on to do a bunch of other things. He is pretty well known for doing, obviously, Bride of Reanimator, but also for society, for people that like it. He did say that the, he thinks the difference in how it was received in Europe versus America was just that Europeans, he said, responded to the ideas in the film a lot better and that Americans just kind of thought it was a big joke. And I'll talk about the themes. They are not subtle at all. And I think, to be honest with you, it's something that would, in modern times, be pretty well received because there's a big movement for it. But as I said, we'll get there. The reviews of this movie were kind of interesting. The LA Times wrote, quote, No one who sees the last half hour of this movie will ever forget it, though quite a few may want to. Oh, that's exciting. And then another reviewer who wrote a review for The Pleasure and Pain of Cult Horror Films said that the film has, quote, one of the craziest and most disgusting endings in movie history. Ooh. Yeah. So now you're excited. Yes. And I will say the ending is out there, and I'm excited to talk about it. The first hour of the movie is not out there and honestly kind of boring, which is my real gripe with this movie. And as I continue to review and describe it, we'll just note that the first hour of this movie is very slow moving. And I get what the buildup of it was, but I feel like it probably could have been a little more succinct. Yeah. That's my opinion. So... In terms of the cast, the main character is Billy Whitney, who is played by super 80s dreamboat Billy Warlock. I have no idea who that is. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people aren't going to know who he is, but he is pretty big. I think that name is a stage name, but he actually got it from his dad, who is a Hollywood stuntman, who also actually played Michael Myers in Halloween 2. But Billy Warlock is well known for being on the first three seasons of Baywatch. He also had a minor role in Halloween 2 with his dad. (laughs) Uh, He then went on to do a lot of soaps. He was a huge soap actor. He was on Days of Our Lives and General Hospital. And then in 2004, he was on an off-Broadway production of The Normal Heart. Interesting. But he's had a pretty successful career. There is a very big possibility that I would recognize him by sight because when I was a kid, my mom, well, my mom still watches Days of Our Lives basically constantly, but she always had it on, which in retrospect might be why I had trouble sleeping because when I was like four was the storyline where a character was possessed by the devil. I don't know much about soaps. I just know about Days of Our Lives. Yeah. Nobody in my family was ever a big soap watcher, so I didn't ever get them, but... I can see him being on soaps. He, like I said, he is very cute. And when I looked him up a little bit for this, he's aged very well. Yeah. In this movie, he's sporting a serious mullet because it's the late 80s. But I can forgive it because of the time period. No. (laughs) This also has the character Clarissa, who was played by Devin DeVasquez, who is beautiful. And she also apparently dated Prince in the late 80s and was a Playboy centerfold model in 1985. Good for her. Yeah. It's got a few other people, too. I'll kind of talk about them as I get to them. But some noteworthy things about this movie. The original opening scene of this movie 
is Billy sort of creeping into his house. He's super like glistening in sweat, wearing a tank top, or as I would refer to it, a wife respecter. And a wife pleaser. A wife pleaser. And so, and then it kind of jumps forward with the plot. Originally, it was supposed to be that he was going into the house at a scene way later in the movie. And then the entire first hour of the film was going to be a flashback. And the director thought that that was too confusing. And I am very glad that he changed that because that would have been super annoying. Oh, God. I would have just walked out of the theater if that had been me. I'm not a big movie person to begin with. And if you try and pull that kind of bullshit, uh uh-uh. No, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah. This entire movie was shot in five weeks. It was heavily influenced by the paintings of Salvador Dali. Uh Uh-huh. And... Also kind of interesting, I'll talk about the scene super briefly. It's not that interesting of a scene, but he ended up having, by he, I mean the director, had to go back and add a shower scene because he thought that the narrative needed to be strengthened and he wanted more shocking scenes. And I can understand it because the first hour, literally nothing interesting happens in this movie because it's just trying to build up this narrative. And so he added some scenes that are supposed to be semi-shocking. I don't know how successful that is. But really, this movie is all about the last 30 minutes. So let's get into it. There's a couple other facts that I'll kind of bring up as they're relevant. Anyway, so as I said, they, it, the movie kind of opens with Billy going into his house. The whole point is that his parents end up coming down. And his parents the whole time in this movie are very weird and creepy. He is obviously from a very rich, affluent family in Beverly Hills. The house is gigantic. The parents are always very put together. Everyone's wearing jewelry. The family is his parents and his sister. Her name is Jenny. And I don't know if this was intentional, but it's probably worth noting that his sister and both his parents have kind of like blonde light features, and he does not. Kind of comes into play later a little bit. And so... So he looks a bit like the milkman? Basically, yeah. He doesn't look like he belongs in the family, and that... His point because, spoiler alert, he doesn't really belong in the family. So anyways, there's kind of this opening scene. I'm going to breeze through a lot of this beginning hour of this movie because, like I said, it's not that interesting. But there's a couple things that you do need to know. There's a character named David Blanchard. They call him Blanchard. He's played by Tim Bartell. He's Jenny's ex-boyfriend. And it becomes very important that she had broken up with him. But he's kind of stocky. And like at one point in the opening scene, Jenny sees something rustling in her closet. And she goes and his face pops out. And he's in the closet, and is like, I just want to talk to you. But then, like, pins her to a chair and covers her mouth, and is like, no, I'm not going to hurt you, I'm just going to talk to you. And it's like, we're, like, past that point. Yes. So anyways, so they kick him out. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, they kick him out, and and that's basically it. But the whole point of the opening bit is that she is getting ready for her coming out party, which I think is, like, a cotillion situation. And as she's getting ready, she asks Billy, her brother, to zip up the back of her dress. And it's like this weird sexual vibe happening. Whatever. But while he's zipping it up, she has sort of some sweat droplets. And then this baseball-sized mound in her back starts pulsating. And he kind of freaks out. And then it sort of goes away. And he's not sure if he imagined it. A big theme of the first hour is sort of, is Billy crazy or are these things really happening? Obviously, we the viewer know they're happening because it's a horror movie, but that's supposed to be the point. Yeah. So then Billy is in therapy because he doesn't know if he's going crazy or not. Yeah. And his therapist is super ineffective, 
But at one point, he takes a bite of an apple and he looks down and there's all these worms and maggots in the apple, which I didn't really get when I was watching it, but it kind of ties into the last part of the movie. So I'll talk about it back then and and kind of reference it. But his therapist basically tells him ominously, you don't really deserve what's going to happen to you. You're going to make a wonderful contribution to society. Therapists are not fortune cookies. Carry on. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll point out now that the whole theme of you're going to make a wonderful contribution to society and these references to quote unquote society happen all throughout the first part of the movie. It's usually the parents talking about society or sometimes the sister or the therapist. Things like basically exactly what he said. You're going to make a wonderful contribution to society or this is for society or blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Really quick thing, Billy has this girlfriend, Shauna. She's a super bitch. She wants Billy to get invited to this guy, Ted Ferguson's party. A lot of dumb stuff happens. Ultimately, Billy does end up getting invited. But before he can go to that party, Blanchard, Jenny's ex, basically comes to him and is freaking out and is like, you have to hear this. You have to hear this. And Blanchard plays for him a tape that was a secret recording. He had put a microphone in Jenny's earring and it was a secret recording of the coming out party Mm -hmm. that i guess billy had not gone to and it was this super weird sort of sexual situation where he hears jenny and his parents and ted ferguson the guy whose party he's about to go to doing all these like weird moans and talking about your first person this and that and it becomes very clear that this was some sort of a sex orgy thing Oh, boy. With, mm, 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 okay. Yeah, so he freaks out and runs to his therapist and is like, listen to this tape, I'm not crazy. The therapist basically plays the tape and, shockingly, it's a different tape. So it's a normal tape of a normal party. And Billy's like, I don't believe this at all. Anyway, cut to Billy being at Ferguson's party. Weirdly enough, sometimes they call people by their last name in this, sometimes it's their first name. Oh, Also important to note, before this all happened and after that, Blanchard had been killed in a mysterious auto accident. Oh. Yeah. But Billy goes to the accident scene and doesn't see the body, but there is a body draped in a sheet and there's a bunch of blood. So he presumes Blanchard is dead. Oh. (laughs) Anyway, he goes to this party and there's Clarissa there and Clarissa is smoking hot and Shauna had gotten mad at Billy because... Originally, Billy couldn't get an invite to this party, and she basically said that they should see other people because he could not get her an invite to the party because she's like a heinous bitch. Yeah. So he goes to the party, but doesn't bring Shauna. And so he runs into Clarissa and is dancing with her, and she's like super hot and everything like that. And Milo comes over and like interrupts their dancing because Milo is like the, I don't know, the like best friend bumbly guy. And... Him and Clarissa kind of get into it. At one point, Milo tells Clarissa, at least I don't turn tricks to get my kicks, which is super rude. And so Clarissa leaves. But then Bill goes and follows her into this tent and he confronts Ferguson and talks about what happened at the coming out because Ferguson was one of the people on the tape. And Ferguson is just like, has no shame and is super sex positive. So he's like, well, you know, first we dined and then I fucked your sister and then everyone got so turned on that they all fucked her too. But it's... Not shit-talking, because it really happened. Oh, boy. Yeah, so Bill gets mad and punches him, and then they throw Bill in the pool, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Clarissa kind of rescues him and takes him back to her house and has sex with him. 
Interestingly enough, this sex scene originally called to show Billy Warlock's naked ass, but he didn't want to do it, and he didn't bring it up because he knew that this scene was being filmed so late into production that they would not be able to fire him for it because there would be so much invested. So he refused to do the naked ass scene, and they really couldn't do anything about it. And then he kind of jokingly said that he refused because he doesn't have a nice ass, but... I don't think that that's true. I think he just didn't want to do it. And they do show a little bit of top butt instead, but you can exactly tell which part they were going to show his ass. And he was like, no. That's rude. It is especially rude because Clarissa has to show her boobies all over the screen because that's what women had to do in the 80s. And I think I should have had to do it too. That's homophobic. Yeah, exactly. So then afterwards, Clarissa is serving Billy tea because that's what you do when you're a good host after you screw someone's brains out. Oh, literal tea. Okay. I thought you were like being like, so afterwards they like sit down for a kiki. No, no, it's real tea. Oh, God. And then she says, how do you like your tea? Cream? Sugar? Or do you want me to pee in it? I mean, that's typically not an option I offer to my guests, but to each their own. Yeah, to which Billy responds, you're a class act, Clarissa. But I mean, like, don't kink shame her. (laughs) Anyway, so Shauna had kind of seen Billy's car outside of Clarissa's car because she has nothing better to do than like stalk around Beverly Hills looking for his Jeep. And so the next day, Shauna shows up wearing this like, actually like really cute short denim dress and white cowboy boots. It's actually really good. But anyways, so she breaks up because she's freaking out. And they. Had, she, this is the, th- the problem. She had already said she wanted to see other people. So he went and he saw somebody else. And now she shows up at his house all fucking mad, stomping around in those cowboy boots. And is like, we're done. Then at one point, she takes off a ring and throws it on the ground. But like, they weren't married. I don't know. Promise ring. Yeah, most we likely. Didn't, we didn't do those in my high school. But it was weird. Anyway, so Bill goes back in the house and he walks in on his parents in their underwear, giving his sister in her underwear a back massage. And during that scene, his mother once again tells Billy that he'll make a great contribution to society. Also, side note, because I keep changing it, they call him Bill and Billy interchangeable in this movie. So it's sort of like whatever. So anyways, there's a funeral scene with Blanchard. It's not that interesting other than they poke his face and it caves in almost like it's a fake body, but they write it off as saying there must have been a lot of reconstruction needed. But they they just want to put that out there. (laughs) It's not how that works, but okay. So some other stuff happens where someone else kind of gets killed. I'm not going to go into it. It's super boring. Anyways, Bill ends up back in his house. And the therapist is there. His family is there. Ultimately, they end up injecting him with a syringe. He passes out. He wakes up into the hospital. An hour of this film has gone by by now. Yeah. And so at this point, I'm just like, oh, my God, something needs to happen. But I did know the reviews said the last 30 minutes were good, which is honestly the only reason that I held out with this movie, because I probably would have turned it off because there's nothing interesting to talk about. So Milo follows the ambulance that's taking Billy to the hospital He checks the front desk for him. Originally, they're like, there's nobody by that name here. And then they're like, oh, that person is dead. Check the morgue. Anyway, it's kind of dumb. Billy is not dead. He gets up. He walks out of the hospital and heads towards his house. So then there's a scene where he gets home. And it's almost exactly the same scene as the movie opened up on, except that he's in slightly different clothing. And I think that this was like the original start of the film. And then everything was a flashback. But... 
that's dumb, so they didn't do that. Yeah. Anyway, so he's home, and he keeps hearing all these gigglings and, and things like that. And you don't see anybody else in the room. And then at one point, all the lights come on, and the room is filled with people, like, wealthy people in, like, nice dresses and tuxes and, like, a party, like, a society party. And they take one of those dog catcher things, the sort of sticks with the, like, loop wire. The yes, the loop on the end. And they loop Billy... And they get him to the ground and then everybody claps. And then this character who's a judge comes out and says, I love the smell of a hunt and the taste of a hunt. At that point, his parents confess that they're not his real parents. Bill was never one of them, that he's different. He's a different race, class, and species from them. You have to be born into society. And But they do make a note of saying they're not aliens. They've been on the earth as long as humans have. And it's a matter of good breeding. Okay, whatever. That's weird. But also a metaphor for how really wealthy people see themselves as completely apart from the rest of the human race and therefore superior when really they're just like the rest of us and there's nothing special about them except for their large amounts of money. Well, it gets, to be honest, it gets even more heavy handed than that, which I'll explain in a second. So then all of the society wealthy people start taking off their nice clothes and getting into their underwear. And this is where the movie takes a real turn. There have already been a couple, but all right, go ahead. So they drag out Blanchard, who is mysteriously alive, and he's in a hospital gown. Then we get to the fisting scene. Oh, I'm sorry. I misspoke. Then we get to the first fisting scene. All right. (laughs) Hit me. So this is something that they call shunting. That's one way to put it. So, yes. So a shunt is a, I looked up the definition because I didn't know what it was, medically is a whole or small passage which moves or allows movement of fluid from one body part to another. Uh Uh-huh. So they refer to this as shunting and will say things like, get ready for the shunting, whatever. Anyway, they all start to feel all over and put their mouths on Blanchard's body. And then their bodies start to get all goopy, like they're covered in like clear gel And then they start to get, like, real pliable, and their mouths, the skin on their mouths literally, like, attach to Blanchard's body. And in a not-so-subtle way, the rich, wealthy society are sucking sort of the life out of this normal person. And here's where I'll bring up the tagline of the film, which is, The rich have always fed off the poor. This time, it's for real. So we're not even trying to be subtle. No. And this is one of the more disturbing scenes because this is like how before when I said it was influenced by Salvador Dali's paintings. These scenes, this last part is why. Because it is like stretched out, goopy bodies everywhere and stuff. And I'm going to show you a picture from a still frame of one of these scenes. Oh, oh, that's intense. That's a lot. Yeah. And the reason why I say this is the fisting scene is because at some point in it, somebody takes their hand and jams it up between the legs of Blanchard, and you see the person's hand start to, like, rummage around in his stomach. Like, like through his lower stomach? Yeah, like they're searching for his car keys, but then ultimately come up through his mouth and through his eyes, and that's kind of the end of Blanchard. There's also a part where the judge, like, eats his beauty mark off of, he has like a mole on his face and the judge eats it off it's it's fucking out there man that's all i can say it's a long scene <laughs> since no one can see i am actively covering 
the mole that I have <laughs> next to my mouth. Oh, I forgot. before. So the judge is the one that Fist Blanchard. I forgot. And it's worth mentioning that before he does it, he says, and now we'll get to the bottom of this. Oh, God. That's just bad. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. And then, of course, they're going to do the same thing to Billy. But Clarissa, who explains it all. <laughs> yeah. Clarissa has been sufficiently digmatized by Billy and runs over to save him and basically takes the little loop off of him, helps him get free. There's kind of a chase scene where Billy runs upstairs because that's what you do instead of running out the front door. Anyways, he runs upstairs and he goes into the bedroom and there in the bedroom, he finds his his mother and father and the sister and the mother is like all sorts of, there's like weird limbs coming out of the bed at like weird angles and stuff. The mother gets up and her legs are human arms, like masculine hairy arms. And then the sister's face comes out of the mother's crotch and is like, Billy, if you ever wanted an edible experience, now is the time. And just to clarify, in case my pronunciation was weird, I didn't, I didn't say edible, I said edipole. Oh! Oh! <laughs> oh! Yeah. So then, Billy goes over to the bed, and an ass comes out of the bed. Is it a nice ass? No, it's a special effects ass, because oh. the middle of it is not an asshole, it is the dad's face. And he's like, I guess I really am a butthead. So it turns into like a cheesy horror comedy after all this body horror. It's not like, I don't necessarily know that it's supposed to be funny, to be honest. I think it's supposed to be outrageous. And earlier in the movie, I probably should have said this, Billy had called the dad a butthead and swore at him. And it was kind of this big like scene. So I don't think it's supposed to be this ha ha he he horror comedy. Like some things were, especially there was a ton of them back in the late 80s, early 90s. But I think it's supposed to be more shocking and grotesque. Yeah. Okay. So then they end up kind of catching Billy the dragon back downstairs. And you kind of see this huge flesh mound descend into this pit out of view because special effects back then. And then three different people, including the judge, sort of emerge from it. So then at this point, Ferguson, who is, of course, a member of society, is there and him and Billy kind of get into a shouting match and Billy sort of challenges him and is like, I'll kick your ass. And everybody's like, haha, no, he won't. So they all set up to let Billy and Ferguson have this sort of toxically masculine duke it out scene, which is also kind of homoerotic in a way because Ferguson is like risky businessing it in just tidy whities and a button up. Okay. I was going to ask. <laughs> Yeah, you know, risky business. Is that where he, like, slides in? Yes, exactly. I'm familiar with the scene, not familiar with the title of the movie that it's from. Yeah, and before they start wrestling, Ferguson looks at Billy and goes, See this arm, Bill? You're gonna get very familiar with it. Don't kink-shame Ferguson. I'm not kink-shaming it. I'm just describing it. I'm a spectator here. So anyway. so And and we won't kink-shame you for that. (laughs) Exactly. Everyone can do what they want as long as it's consensual. So Clarissa tried to intervene, but she can't because she's a woman in the late 80s and they can't do anything. Except show their tits. Exactly. So Ted kind of starts pummeling Billy. He's getting in all the licks. And then Ted grabs Billy 
and starts to kiss him. Oh, okay. So his face is like all up on Billy's lips and it's like this like really long kind of drawn out kiss. But then Ted starts to kind of do the thing where everyone else was doing where his body gets real pliable. Like he starts to like melt and you can see that his face is going to try to like suction onto Billy's face. So Billy makes a fist, winds up and shoves his hand up Ted's ass, basically. Because the theme of this movie is fisting. I don't know what else to say about that. And basically, because Ted had became pliable, his hand goes all the way up Ted's ass into his skull. Billy grabs a handful of something and yanks his arm back and turns Ted completely inside out. Oh, okay. And now is the part where I say that when he is inside out... His entire innards of his body is just worms and maggots. And I don't know if it's supposed to be worms and maggots or that's what they use to get the effect, but it's the same type of worms and maggots that were inside the apple in the very beginning of the film in the therapist's office. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. I also forgot to say that after he took the bite of the apple, he decided he didn't like it, so he put it back in the fruit bowl on top of the other apples. Like, what kind of a monster does that? (sighs) So anyway, so at that point, Ted is like dead and all the party people are super shocked by it, but I guess they don't care enough to stop him because then he, Clarissa and Milo just kind of walk out of the party. Billy does punch his dad on the way out. They jump in Billy's Jeep and speed off. And that is the end of society. Oh boy. And then the end credits run and, and I will say that the credits the music and the credits to this movie is a very like i think it's a school song i think i was reading that somewhere but it's a very sort of violin classical refined proper song so it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between the end of this movie after this crazy 30 minutes of watching old rich people meld into flesh mounds and then it's this this high society song so anyways so that's society yikes all righty like i said I did not love this movie because the first hour was a struggle. I'm not going to lie. I got that the the need for the foreshadowing and stuff, but they, I forgot to mention when it happened, but they added the shower scene for more of a punch effect. And it was, all it was, was Billy basically walking in and creeping on his sister in the shower. And he can see through one of those sort of modeled glass shower doors that her torso has been twisted where like, her boobs are facing the shower door, but then so is her ass. Oh. So it's like weird. It's actually kind of a cool scene, but that scene was added later because I think the director realized there was so little interesting about this first hour that they needed more than people randomly just saying, you're going to be such a great contribution to society. Like that was effective, but they needed more for it. You needed something else to imply that something was going wrong. I agree. And I think that this movie could have legitimately been 20 to 30 minutes shorter if they had just edited down some of the first hour. The last scene was, of course, fine. And maybe part of the appeal is that you have this sort of tame movie leading up to it, and then the last scene hits you like, what the fuck is happening? So maybe that was part of the effect. And I can kind of get that. I didn't hate this movie. Because the ending of it did kind of make up for it, but it was not my favorite. By any means, because of the first part, 
I will say, and you've seen one still frame from that last scene, the movie is 100% worth watching just for the last 30 minutes, if you're into body horror. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so that's society and my take on society. Good, not great. And now, tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, so I have a book that I thoroughly enjoyed. Unlike most of the stuff I've already done, not all, but most of the stuff I've done, it's not campy at all. Like, it's just, like, straight-up horror. This book is what Grady Hendrix, who you know I adore, (laughs) and will mention as many times as possible, described as Little Hell House on the Prairie. Oh, that's pretty nice. I like that. I'm excited. So this is Daughters Unto Devils by... I think I'm saying this right. I'm not sure I'm saying it right. Amy Lukovich. I've known someone in the past who had a last name. The spelling ended that way. And they pronounced it like I-C-H. So that's where that basis is from. It was published in 2015. The cover is pretty simple, but pretty effective. It's like a girl in a prairie dress, like that old tiny thing. Her hair is hanging over her face. She's standing in front of like a wooden shack slash barn. And it says Dars Unto Devils. It's simple, but it's effective. It gets the point across. Oddly enough, I'm not going to read you the entire blurb for it because... It reveals a lot, and it reveals a lot of, like, the shocking things that I want your genuine reaction to. So if I read the entire blurb to you, you would get bored with the rest of my podcast portion. Um, But I'll read you the first part. I would never get bored with your podcast. Yes, you would. But that's cute. It's cute when you lie. When 16-year-old Amanda Verner's family decides to move from their small mountain cabin to the vast prairie, she hopes it is her chance for a fresh start. She can leave behind the memory of the past winter, of her sickly ma giving birth to a baby sister who cries endlessly, of the terrifying visions she saw as her Sandy began to slip, the victim of cabin fever, and most of all, the memories of a boy she has been secretly meeting with as a distraction from her pain. A boy whose baby she now carries. Okay. So let's have a quick rundown of the people in the family so that I can just use names and you know who I'm talking about. Can I also ask what time period this is set in? Like Little House on the Prairie. Think like Covered Wagon. Okay. That's kind of what I thought it was because it's just kind of talking like that. But I just wanted to make sure that 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 was accurate. Okay. Proceed. So you have Pa and you have Ma. You have Amanda, who is the oldest child, our main character. Her younger sister, Emily. Then you have like, in like the most cliche way possible, you have like the two middle children that really only have importance towards the end. Their names are Charlie and Joanna. I really only mention them so that when I bring them up at the end, you're not like, wait a second, what? (laughs) And then you have Hannah, who is the baby sister. And so as the book is opening, we know that the previous winter, the family was snowed in their cabin in the mountains for like four months. And Ma was very, very ill during a large part of her pregnancy. And during that time... And when she gave birth to Hannah, Hannah was deaf and blind, which is why Hannah cries all the time, because she doesn't understand what's going on. And like, Ma is the only one who can keep Hannah calm, probably because of the way Hannah smells and like things like that, or the way Ma smells and things like that. So 
We also learn from a flashback. I've kind of like restructured this book to make it linear when I'm talking about it. But you learn like halfway through from, through a flashback that the morning after Hannah is born, and this was like a very harrowing scene. The morning after Hannah is born, Amanda wakes up in like the faint light of early morning and she's looking out the window and she sees the literal fucking devil just like traipsing along their front lawn. Like just going about his business. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. But he like senses that she's looking at him and he starts to like, he calls her a sinner and things like that. And then he says that he's going to devour her soul and she falls back from the window screaming and no one else sees anything. And then she's basically catatonic for a period of time. This is all like before the actual story starts. Okay. But it has a big effect on the family dynamic because it explains why like Pa is really cold towards her because, you know, he thinks that she was making something up for attention right after this baby was born. Like a whole bunch of other like bullshit. We also know from the blurb that Amanda has been seeing a boy named Henry, whose baby she is now carrying. And through another flashback that's partially through the book that again takes place before the actual story starts, he's been telling her stories, like all these ghost stories and stuff like that. One of them, interestingly enough, is about a woman going mad and she murders her children and then sews their heads onto the tops of scarecrows. Ooh. Yeah, no, it's a lot. It's fun. So as the story is opening up, basically, she's realizing that she's pregnant. And she tells Henry, and shock, shock, surprise, surprise, the boy from town that you know nothing about except what his penis feels like doesn't react very well to finding out that he got you pregnant. And basically just, like, scurries off. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have a lot of options back in the oaky smoky days, so. No, not at all. Shortly after this, Pa goes into town, and when he comes back, he tells the family two things. One, that the winter is supposed to be even worse than the winter before, where they were snowed in for like three, four months. And two, that there are apparently a whole bunch of abandoned homes in the prairie, so they're moving. To one of the abandoned homes? Yes. During the really bad winter? Well, before the really bad winter started. So keep in mind, the winter was going to be so bad because they were up in the mountains. Oh, So, okay. like, heavy snow up in mountains moved down to the prairie where it's not going to be as bad. Okay, that makes sense then. So they hitch up their literal covered wagon, which actually there's a scene talking about, like, the assembly of putting the cover on the wagon that I found weirdly interesting. <laughs> but anyway, they hitch up their literal covered wagon to an ox, and they go. And the first house that they pass... There's a family outside waving, so they know that that's not the free one. But the second one they see is huge. It's like three times the size of their mountain home. And they call out and no one responds. And they're like, yes, this is it. But here's the problem. The floor is torn up and the entire interior of the cabin is covered in blood. Oh my god. This is the premise of so many horror stories where it is always these... I don't want to say white families, but it's always these white families that get this great deal on this house and they're like, oh, but unfortunately it's haunted and like everyone gets like crazy and murders everybody inside. But that won't happen to us. Yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah, pretty much. This is the premise of a lot of what is kind of referred to as like real estate horror. Yeah. This is just like oaky smoky real estate horror. <laughs> okay. I'm here for it though. And literally everyone in the family, like Hannah 
the blind and deaf baby starts screaming immediately. All of the children are like, "Uh uh-uh, no ma'am, Pam. And the mom is like, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 sir, no, sir. And Pa is like, this seems fine. (sighs) Fucking Pa. I know. I know. And like Amanda is having auditory hallucinations of like a baby crying inside. But they're like, it's cool. We'll just wash it and replace the floor. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So shortly after that, they meet a boy named Zeke. And Zeke lives with his father in the woods. They'll come into play later. But his father is a doctor. So that's basically like the main importance of the father. So they are working on the house. Amanda is hearing the sounds of baby crying coming from inside of the house while everyone is sleeping. And this is kind of like over the period of a few days because, you know, they get the materials, but they have to rebuild the floor inside before they can actually move in. So, you know, like, you know that the house is bad. Amanda knows the house is bad and no one else seems to care. Then the first night that they are in the house, while they're eating dinner, Amanda hears three knocks. Ooh, three knocks. On the window. And Paul looks outside and, oh no, there's no one there. Well, after that, Amanda has an extremely graphic miscarriage. And when she wakes up with, like, the cramping from it, she runs out of the house and she ends up going to, like, the edge of the woods and has her miscarriage there. This is important because the next night, everything happens very quickly. Everyone is sleeping and then Amanda hears baby crying outside by the water pump. Like, in the direction of the water pump, out behind the house. So she goes out of the house, and as soon as she rounds the corner of the house, because she, like, goes out the front door and is going around the house to go behind where the water pump is, the crying stops. But she still goes and she investigates. And here's, like, the creepiest part in the whole book. On her way back to the house from the water pump, she sees glowing eyes from right where she miscarried. And then, like... She looks closer, and it's a baby standing. So it's like a newborn baby, but standing upright, just staring at her. So she rushes inside. Hmm. Like you do. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. Shortly thereafter, because again, we're on like a whirlwind fast plot. Uh, shortly thereafter, another night, everyone is sleeping soundly when Hannah wakes up screaming, just like, screaming harder than they've ever heard her scream before. So everyone's scrambling around because it's the Okie Smokey days, so you can't flip a switch, to find a lamp, light a lamp. And it looks like Hannah is covered in oil and they hold the lamp closer and Hannah is covered in ants that are eating her alive. Oh my God. (laughs) So they take Hannah outside and they like dunk her in water to wash, to like get all the ants off. But she's starting to swell up because she's been bitten repeatedly by ants and so pa rides into the woods with hannah because that's where zeke and his father who is a doctor live so he rides into the woods to get help and that's when ma starts to go insane okay so ma basically it starts off with ma being like really worried about hannah and slowly she descends into madness There's like a really weird scene where she's like, I need to go get us dinner. And she's in like a nightgown and she just like straps boots on and grabs a rifle off the wall and just stomps out. I don't know. It's weird. She like makes a meat pie with undercooked 
organs in it and tries to like feed it to the children. It's like, it, it clearly something is very wrong with Ma. And at one, like when it starts to get too much, Amanda and Emily are like, okay, like we're going to take the kids outside now. And so they go outside with the kids and Emily takes the two, like the, the middle siblings outside and Amanda is following. And on her way out, Ma says to Amanda, I was shocked when you didn't answer when I knocked, but you already have a devil inside you. Bum, bum, bum. So they decide that they are going to go get help from Zeke and his father because Pa and Hannah have been gone for like three days at this point. And Ma is going insane. So they've decided that they're going to go see if Pa and Hannah are there and try and get help from like Pa, Zeke, and his dad. So Amanda and Emily take Joanna and Charles, the middle children who have no other purpose than to be bratty and then be used as a plot device at the end, and they hide them in the woods. And then they start heading towards Zeke's cabin, and they hear screaming. And when they get there, they realize it's animal screaming. To be specific, pigs. The pigs are screaming in joy because they're eating the remains of Pa and Hannah. Yikes. At which point, Zeke and his dad come out of the house and basically say that Pa brought the curse from the cabin into the woods, which had previously been a safe place. And so now they're no longer safe. And then they leap into the pig pen. To be eaten alive by the pigs. That seems like an extreme reaction. It was a lot. It was quite a bit. But I also think I remember that like Zeke is like decaying or something. Like it's it was weird. It was weird, but very well done. But I mean, couldn't you just kill yourself? Like Well, they did. I know, but eaten alive is would not be my choice in that situation. Maybe they really loved their pigs and they wanted to nourish them. I mean, that cannot be a pleasant death, right? No, no, I'm being facetious. That I guess it depends which end they start on. Still not fun. So Emily and Amanda are like fleeing to try and grab Joanna and Charles, but they aren't in their hiding place. Bum, bum, bum. So they go back to the cabin and inside Ma is completely naked Covered in blood. The entire inside of the house is covered in blood because she took the ox and slaughtered the ox inside of the house. Hmm. And basically, Emily and Amanda attack her. Amanda ends up stabbing her and then they flee with the kids. And then there's like more of an ending, but I don't want to give that away because then I'll basically have given away the entire plot of this book. (laughs) Anyway, so that is Daughters Unto Devils. I would actually give it five out of five babies staring at you from across your lawn. I honestly thought it was really good. It was very well paced. It was very perfectly pitched. My only complaint, honestly, is that I wanted more. Like, I wanted more, and I guess through getting more, I kind of wanted it to be a bit more spaced out. But the reason that didn't knock anything off of my rating for it is because it is published by Harlequin Teen, because it's a YA book. And Harlequin has very strict word restrictions for their imprints. Oh, okay. So this author was probably given a word limit and had to pack everything into that word limit. So it probably could have been like twice as long. It's just because of the publisher, she didn't really have an option. No. I mean, that story sounds really cool. And because I obviously know the real ending from you and more details about it. It sounds cool. It sounds like it's definitely worth a read if you're into horror books. 
Yeah, just like horror in general. Like, it was great. I read it in like a day. No, I mean, that sounds great and really spooky. It's kind of got a little bit of the witch vibe to it in a way. Yeah, I thought about that a lot. I do like the witch. Yeah, I mean, I love the witch. And this, it's got that vibe, but definitely seems like it has enough distinctions that, to be honest, it almost seems scarier than the witch. Yeah, it definitely, books don't really scare me all that much. Unlike movies, horror movies do freak me out. But books don't really scare me all that much. So I wasn't necessarily terrified at any point. But I, my heart skipped a beat a little bit with the baby standing across the field. Like, that's just kind of freaky. Yeah, I mean, babies are terrifying. Exactly. Human larvae. <laughs> so, scared or not, if you were in Daughters Unto Devils, would you be killed? Honestly, probably. Uh, it makes sense because there's kind of the implication that the prairie as a whole is cursed. And if I were in the book, I'd probably be in the prairie because that otherwise, why would I be in the book? So yes, I would probably die. Just logically speaking. Would you die in society? Probably not. I didn't exactly go into it, but it's really quick. The whole point of Billy and the reason why I was talking about how he doesn't look like his parents is because he is not their kid. He's like some random human baby that they decided to raise and groom specifically for the point of incorporating him into society. Interesting. And it seems like they choose very specific types of people for that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I don't trust people that rich, so I wouldn't go to their parties. Exactly. So I would probably say no to the society. There's not a lot of people that are killed. In fact, there's two fake deaths and then Blanchard is actually killed. But I think he's the only one that actually dies in that movie. Yeah. So not a lot of deaths, just a lot of body horror and gruesomeness. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. You can find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads under Second to Die Pod. You can also email us any sorts of questions, comments, concerns, or book or movie suggestions at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Yes, please do. We're bored and lonely. So lonely. (laughs) Anyway, don't forget, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.